All right. So when the last time we spoke, we, we talked about how the president or what the president's responsibilities are. Now we're going to talk about how the president gets elected, which is actually pretty cool because we're going through that process now. Um, we're in an election year. But also how they can be removed from office, which is cool because we just had impeachment proceedings. So Yeah, very relevant. Very relevant for today's day and age. So here we go. You know, the idea of how the president was going to be elected was also another example of compromise coming into play for the founders of uh, the document of the Constitution. For the Electoral College, that was created as a safety net. But when we... In order to understand why they created the Electoral College, it's important to, to understand why they felt it was needed. When talking about you know, who should elect the president, there were a number of possibilities that they were floating around. Should Congress elect the president? What about state governments or legislatures? And then lastly, there, the idea was, well, the people. And so you have to consider the time period there is no such thing as television. There is no such thing as the radio. These things have not been invented yet. There is no such thing as a national newspaper. What do we have? We've got the Pony Express. If somebody is running for president, and unless you've you know, heard this person make a speech, you have no idea who this person is. Most people are illiterate. They cannot read. So who is going to be electing the president if we're going to allow the people to decide? And so it's a two-part system. There is a popular vote and there is the electoral college. You know, today when there is a presidential election, you know, any news channel you turn on, there's that map, that electoral college map. And first it's blank, right? And then you start seeing it getting shaded in some places are red and some places are blue and then sometimes there's question marks because it's too close to call too close to call and people start calling states for a candidate when the polls are open for two or three more hours this is very dangerous stop please news media if you're watching this please or listening if to us listening, you can't watch us can't you're no, listening to ne- us neither one of us have a face for radio but you know maybe we'll get there one day <laughs> so when you are watching these news channels and they're you know talking about the president elect so yes this person has won the popular vote but we don't call them president until the electoral college has really voted them right, in so it's president elect and then exactly the formality of whatever. exactly so who could vote when the, the constitution was written it was white landowning men over the age of 21 they are considered the most qualified to rule. You know, the framers of the Constitution didn't trust men who didn't own land. They said, what kind of stake do they have? Can we really trust them to vote? So it was white land-owning men over the age of 21. Now, this will change over time. Who can vote? We're going to devote an entire podcast to this, so I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but that was who could vote at the start. Right, and, and you know what? We started these podcasts because we wanted to, our goal was to maybe provide an additional education to the common day voter, where I think, I think you know what? There's a lot of ignorance and a lot of apathy where people don't know, people don't care. And, um, you know, this is a little plug on why, why, we're, why we're doing this. Yeah. You know, we're calling it history repeated because I don't think a lot of people paid attention the first time around. But Unless the, you had me as a teacher, and then I hope you paid attention. Because you've got this for free five days a week. 
All right, well, in any event, you know, we want to educate the people. But back then, you know what? These were the people with the education, the people that were able to, to buy an old land or at least have a stake in the country. You have to be a citizen. So if you are a citizen of the United States at this point in time, male, over the age of 21, you owned property, you can vote. Now, at its creation, the Electoral College, each elector would cast one vote for their top two choices. The most votes became president. The second place became vice president. In the first part of this podcast, we we talked a little bit about the 12th Amendment. This was not a good idea. Ultimately, this is changed by the 12th Amendment after the election of 1800s and 36 ballots within the House of Representatives to decide that Thomas Jefferson is going to be the third president of the United States. Um, But at its creation, the electors didn't have to vote the way of the popular vote. So again, the Electoral College is that safety net. If the people choose unwisely, we can fix it. We're going to allow the people to vote, but just in case they choose someone that shouldn't be, the Electoral College can come in and kind of save the day. Well, hold on, hold on. If that should happen... Today? Today. Well, we're, you, you took the words out of my mouth. So I'm going to talk about that. Because I think people would, you know... It, sh- it does happen. But the shit would hit the fan. I mean, you would have a revolt. It does happen. But here, here is, here is what my, my big gripe. Most people could not name who their state senators are. Most people mm-hmm. can vote. Who can vote, don't vote. Those votes have the ability to change the tide of the election dramatically. I will get on this in the next podcast, but briefly, please, if you are eligible to vote, register, go out and vote. But just to answer your question, you know, today with the Electoral College, we say that electors are pledged, but not bound. So here is where people really start in with, well, my vote doesn't count because this popular vote doesn't really elect the president. So when you go to vote, so I live in New York. When I go and vote, essentially what I am doing when I pull that lever or I, now we bubble, right? We bubble and we scan. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But when I do that, what I am essentially doing is I am voting for my state's electors to vote for the candidate of my choice to become president. So currently the electoral college is a winner take all system. And you don't really need millions and millions of votes to become president. You really need that magic number of 270 or higher. There's a great website, 270 to win. And you can see how the electoral college has played its role in presidential election history. But today we have 538 electors who are pledged but not bound. And this has happened on many occasions where an elector will not vote the way that his or her state has voted. So whichever candidate wins the majority of the popular vote in that state gets all of the electors for that state. It's a winner-take-all system. So let's say you win by one vote, you get all of the votes for that state. If you do not vote the way your state has voted, you are considered a faithless elector. 24 states actually have laws to punish faithless electors, 
but no one has ever been prosecuted. So, I mean, when... Has anyone been a faithless elector? Yes, you can go back and you can see it. So, when the Electoral College used to, you know, cast their votes, it was like a nail-biter. You didn't know how it was going to work out because they didn't have to vote the way of the people. Today, it's done out of tradition and because the Constitution demands that it's done, but we know who the winner is going to be ultimately. But once upon a time, it was, is the Electoral College going to vote the same way as the people? Well, who makes up the Electoral College? So that's a very good question. So each political party within a state gets to decide who their electors are. And if you go back in time to when the Constitution is written, you know, states' rights, states having power, states having a say, it makes sense. So each state gets to decide who their electors are going to be. So each political party for a state will choose their electors. And if that political party's candidate wins, those are the electors that are going to vote. So when we talk about there being 538 electors in the Electoral College, it's important to understand where that number comes from. So it's the combined number of people in the House of Representatives and the Senate for each state. So that's how New York has 31 electors in the Electoral College, the two senators plus the number of members in the House of Representatives. So just for the timeline, we have election night in November. The Electoral College meets in December, and Congress then counts the votes of the Electoral College in January. The Electoral College is really a hot-button issue because you have times where the person who wins the popular vote doesn't win the presidency. You know, our most recent election, Donald Trump did not win the popular vote, but he got that magic number in the Electoral College, 270 or higher. Yeah, but the framers did that for a reason, because they don't want they don't want the most populous states to decide everything because we are we are there are 50 states you don't want the top three deciding or, or three of the top four deciding who's going to win because you have what you have new york you have california you have illinois and you have texas those are the those are the highest four correct yeah so you don't want those four states deciding for the other 46 you know there are pros and cons after the election of 2016, you have Democrats in an uproar about the Electoral College. You know, back in the election of 2000 between George W. Bush and Al Gore, that state of Florida was in contention for quite a while. And, you know, the recount was ultimately stopped by a Supreme Court case uh, called Gore versus Bush, and they said, you know, the recount has to stop, and however the numbers stand, that's how they stand. And George W. Bush won the election because he got to that number of 270 and higher. And so you will have those elections where the Electoral College has ultimately chosen the president. And there are these calls immediately after to amend the Electoral College, to get rid of it altogether, but it stands the test of time. All right, so that's how the president gets into office. Now let's talk about the ways to remove the chief executive from his position. 
Yeah, you know, so the question is, what if the president can no longer be president or should no longer be president? So in the case of illness, impeachment, death, resignation, there is a, a list of presidential succession. So the first person would be the vice president, who is currently Mike Pence, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, President pro tempore of the Senate, who is currently uh, Iowa Republican Charles Grassley, to kind of serve as the presiding officer in the absence of the vice president, which is always because the vice president no longer just sits in the Senate, in the Senate waiting right. for a tie, you know? A Secretary of State, Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of Defense, Attorney General, and it goes all the way down the list from when each of those departments was created in that order. You know, but if you watched, yeah. Aren't some of those appointed positions? Like Secretary of State is definitely an appointed position. All of the cabinet are, yeah, that, but they are approved by the Senate, and the likelihood of it getting that far down the list is extremely unlikely unless you're watching, you know, that, that show Designated Survivor where... You know. well, they actually brought that up in the last uh, State of the Union speech. They always talk about who the designated, who, who the designated survivor, survivor is. Should, should your TV blow up on, on you in the event yeah. of something disastrous happening? So there are ways the president uh, can be removed from office. You know, if president uh, is too sick, uh, you know, they, they passed something called the 25th Amendment in 1967. So the vice president takes over presidential duties if the president is incapacitated or disabled, and the vice president is given temporary authority. This, the, this amendment has been enacted three times, all for medical procedures. You know, if, you know, when Reagan was shot and he needed to have surgery when he was put under, the vice president was temporary given that authority. What if the president dies in office? You know, after President Kennedy is assassinated, Lyndon Johnson, his vice president, is sworn in um, because there needs to be that chief executive. Um, the most recent is, of course, impeachment. And there have been now three presidents who have been impeached. And all of them are partisan, though, no? Yes. You know, if you look back at the three historical examples one could certainly make that argument. You know, there's a lot of misconceptions about impeachment. When the House of Representatives made that vote to impeach Donald Trump, there were some people who really believed he was done, he was out of office. What impeachment is, and according to the Constitution, the president can be removed from office for a, you know conviction of treason, bribery, but that phrase, that catchphrase that's always used is high crimes and misdemeanors. So calls for impeachment must begin in the House of Representatives. They need a simple majority. And that's where we saw those calls from impeachment start with Donald Trump. But they were talking about, and I know this is this is kind of off the beaten path, but I have issue with, with partisan politics, no matter who's in office, right? So you have, from the moment he's inaugurated, people saying that they want to impeach him, and then they made that happen. You know, this is the major issue with political parties, where- And we're gonna do one on political parties. We are, we are. And you know, political parties serve their purpose, but they impede the political process. And 
if you look at impeachment votes just in the Senate for any of the three presidents who have been impeached, you are seeing people voting along party lines. Well, in the Senate, that's to either convict or acquit. Uh, to, yes. Or but, in but the then, House, the it's either to House. impeach the or not to impeach. In the House where they're yes. In, yeah. yes. So, you know, the Senate will then conduct the trial. And the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court acts as the judge and the Senate as the jury. Well, let's go back to the House's responsibility because prior to it getting there, which we just saw, mm -hmm. it is the House's responsibility to put together the case, correct? So the House of Representatives, they are calling for impeachment. So they then have to get specific. How has this official committed a high crime, a misdemeanor? What have they specifically done? And so if you look at the three examples that we now have of presidential impeachment, you can look at what those articles of impeachment are for or were for each one. So we have had three presidents impeached, all of whom were found not guilty. Were any were any of those impeachments more relevant or had more what they call high crimes associated with it? Well, I mean, if you look at the case of Bill Clinton, did he commit perjury? He did. He did. He lied under oath. And there was a lot of debate at the time. Was, was this a high crime? Is it a low crime? You know, for Andrew Johnson, who was the first president impeached, um, in 1867, he was impeached. Now, to understand why he was impeached, you have to go back in time a little bit. You know, Andrew Johnson was Abraham Lincoln's vice pre president. He was chosen to be the vice president as an olive branch. You know, we're in the midst of the, well, Civil, the War. Civil War. The Civil War is coming to an end at this point. And they choose Andrew Johnson because he was the only Southern senator who did not leave the union he stayed and lincoln um chooses him as as a way to show the south we're going to work with you mm -hmm. and nobody has a way of of knowing that lincoln is going to be assassinated and now we have a southern democrat in charge of the executive branch so almost immediately radical republicans are saying we've got to limit this guy we've got to limit what he can do and the entirety of his term is is him going against the radical Republicans in the legislative branch, the legislative branch overriding his veto, and ultimately getting to the point where they're saying, we got to get rid of this guy. we got to figure out a way to get rid of him. And so what the legislative branch does is they pass this law called the Tenure of Office Act. Now, Andrew Johnson grows up poor. He is self-taught. He was a tailor by trade. He gets involved in local politics but he knows the Constitution frontwards and backwards. He knows that this is completely unconstitutional. And they know he's going to test those waters. He fires his secretary of, of war. I think it was a man by the name of, of Stanton. And they impeach him. And he remains in office by one vote. So again, you, you see people say, oh, my one vote doesn't matter. Here it is. He stayed in office. So, so they almost had the 75%. They almost had it, yeah. But, you know, 
you know, after a while, that law is overturned because it was unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. The, the president has the right to fire a member of, of his cabinet. You serve, serve at the pleasure of the president, president yeah. you know? If you look at Bill Clinton in 1998, he's brought up on charges of perjury and obstruction of, of justice. Is it a high crime? Is it a low crime? You get to you know Nixon's presidency. The House started to call for impeachment after the Watergate scandal and, and, and cover-up. He would have been impeached. He, he, he resigned. Probably, he probably would have been impeached. So the only, the only president to be impeached without being charged with an actual crime is Donald Trump. Well, you know, it depends on who you talk to. And there, there's where we go back to those party lines. Well, no, the law, when you said with, with um, who was the first one? Andrew Johnson. So with Andrew Johnson, it was, a, you know, they, they, they en- ended up changing it, right? But it was, it still broke well, a law. Broke a law, yeah. And then Clinton, perjury, you can't argue that. He lied under oath. But obstruct, there's no such thing as obstruction of Congress. In this particular case, in this, uh, in this particular case, they did not follow their process in Congress. They were in a rush to impeach, probably well, because it was getting close to their little vacation on Christmas. If you want to play devil's advocate, and I think we need to, if we're going to, let's, let's do it. We're, we're, to, we're, we're not looking to yeah. to be opinion, but yes. let's hash it out. Should the president of the United States use their position? to gain leverage over a political opponent. And that was one of the questions. In this because you have to flip the coin. Was there wrongdoing on the side of Biden, on Biden's son, maybe the Obama administration of having Hunter Biden on that board? Was it a conflict of interest? Is there something there that is worthy of the American people to know? Was this Donald Trump's purpose? Most likely not in finding that, but doesn't mean that there wasn't purpose there. We don't know intent. We just know it. We don't know intent. And they released a transcript, but then you had you had Congress changing the words of the transcript to suit their purposes, which now you're talking about some skewage, right? We we said we're no opinion. We're talking about facts. The transcript, as it was released, did not match what Adam Schiff and Congress read the transcript to be, or quote unquote read, because it wasn't the same. So, so thereby they're they're playing, and then we can talk about the media and everything else, which is why we're doing this. We're doing this to educate the voter. So you can talk about where people are in their knowledge point, mm-hmm. their trust in the media, which is another thing. But then the media, uh, you know. I think all of the media should have segments marked as opinion when it is opinion and not fact. And I, and I think I, I know that these channels or these networks get paid based off of the advertising dollars that come in. I don't begrudge anyone making money for the viewers and everything else. I get it. But you should mark it as opinion and not as fact. And they are all positioning it, positioning it as fact, which there is the problem. And I think you also need to get a variety of, of news sources. You can't just watch one no. station. If you watched coverage of the impeachment on Fox News as opposed to coverage on CNN, you got two very different narratives. And that should never be the case. It shouldn't. And, and you know what? When, when I watch the news and my kids are around, I, I purposely, purposely change the channel 
and I say, hey, pay attention. They're talking about the same story, but they're not talking about it the same way. And I and my kids now currently are are 15 and 12, and I try to tell them, make your own opinion, but look at different sources. You know, in the case of Donald Trump, he was charged with abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. From the very beginning, the obstruction of Congress, in my opinion, was never going to stick because the president can reserve the right to use executive privilege. Checks balances. Now, is it the job of the president to make it easy on Congress if they're going to impeach the president? No. No. <laughs> you know, were there ways to get interviews with, let's say, Bolton? Were there ways to get other people to testify, other witnesses? And and it was and I and I think they didn't want they didn't want to go through the time of fighting it out in court and going through the due process. But hey, we can sit here and debate on this stuff all day, and um, it's an interesting time. But come back for our next podcast.